yeah, I found a um, an article, a uh, newspaper article, I think from about 1971. And Morris says in that he, he could be making this up or emphasising, but he says that he's totted up by 1971 that the Bee Gees have done a, over a thousand songs together. <laughs> That's Morris. That's Morris. I believe Morris said that. <laughs> no, I, thought, no question. I thought it might be. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. And we're here for a special episode today. We're joined by a guest, somebody who we refer to in pretty much every episode since setting up the Gibbs Songs website and then with contributions to the Ultimate Biography and credits on some of the Bee Gees CD reissues from 2006 and 2009 and various other projects. We're joined today from America, Joseph Brennan. How did your relationship with the Bee Gees and their music begin? Well, uh, we turn the clock back to 1969. Um, There was a radio station in New York called WNEW-FM. At that time, FM stations were not the top 40 ones. They were the deep deep album cuts kind of things. And uh, a DJ there played the track Odessa, the song. And I thought, I've never heard anything like this. This is great, you know. And it's I think it's rare on your very first listen to something you say, I love it. You know, sometimes it's too strange and you, you can't do that. But this is, a, this is really good. Now, he gave the name of the group. And I knew that I, I remembered that I had heard on Top 40 radio songs like Massachusetts, Gotta Get a Message to You. I started a joke, which was a single in the United States. And uh, so I knew vaguely who they were, but I had not actually bought one of their records. So I, I did go and get the Odessa album, which had the fuzzy red cover. That's it. I hope, I hope you've had a chance to see one of those. There. We've got the 2009 reissue. Oh, yes, that's fuzzy too? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah the picture LP-sized like that. Yeah. But the front has nothing on it but Bee Gees Odessa. And the back had just the fuzzy red. And I thought, well, if, when I get home and open it, I'll be able to see what they look like. <laughs> no, there's that big picture of people being rescued from a ship, I think. And and just names. The songwriters were B, R, and M Gibbs. So even that didn't tell me much. But it didn't matter. I, I played the record all the way through. I liked it a lot. And so I began to go backwards. Find some of the earlier ones at that time in the store and uh, kind of got me going on it. I saw in this um, reissue and also the fantastic reissue box set from 2006. Oh yeah. And and then also the Saved by the Bell collection. Mm -hmm. I could see that you were credited on all of these releases. And I just wanted to ask you, so how did you become involved with these box sets and how did you first start going through and on your Gib songs website, which is an absolute Bible for our podcast yeah. We use it all the time. How did you start going through and recording their dates and then eventually become involved with these reissues? The website came about because at work, this new thing called the World Wide Web was coming in. Uh, early 90s, I think, mid 90s. Yeah. And we were encouraged to learn about it and even put something on the World Wide Web. So I had to come up with something. Um, I had been trying to figure out for myself, a rather difficult question, especially at that time, pre-World Wide Web, 
it was difficult to find what were all of their records. I could see what a store had, but um, it had the albums from first horizontal idea and then Odessa. And uh, there was that rare, precious and beautiful, which is some of the Australian recordings. Is that the one with the butterfly? It's got the butterfly. In the yeah, front. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So th- th- those, I, those I got, you know. And then once in a while, I come across, there was a song that wasn't on any of those, like Words, <laughs> was not on an album until they, they put out uh, Best of Bee Gees, which I think was an American compilation, but I think it was released elsewhere. Um, that had words. It had a very bad stereo mix of words. It sounds horrible. But there's that one. And then once in a while, something else would come across my attention, that, that single Jumbo, which just was not a hit anywhere and and never appeared on a best of either. Um, so I started trying to figure out what were all the records. I was getting a little obsessive. I wanted to have every one of their records. I remember I found out the library at Columbia had issues of Billboard magazine. If I went through those week by week, there was a weekly, mm. I could see what records were coming out. It was I had fun. I had fun doing stuff like this. I just, I wanted to try to find them all. So I ended up making a list. Um, the oldest version of that list I put on the web, probably around 1995, around there. It got some attention from a few people. There was a woman in Norway, for example, who mm-hmm. responded to it and told me how in uh, midwinter they have only daylight for two hours where she was. All right, yeah. So everyone took a two-hour break in the middle of the day, she said, yeah. so you could see the sun. Yeah. <laughs> At one time, I heard from a man in Antarctica, which is incredible, a U.S. Uh, naval station in Antarctica. So I had the email from Antarctica. Not many people can see that. Um, so it, it, it got to be fun. And uh, you can see I enlarged it into the, the thing we have now with a little more knowledge of HTML and, and so on. The first one was just plain text all the way through, but it represented my, what I knew of how many records they had put out and more things kept turning up. Those box sets came because I forget how it happened that I was in contact with Andrew Sandoval who compiled those two. Uh, he, he's in LA and I was, you know, I ended up talking to him. We were on the phone a few times cross country and uh, yeah, he invited me to comment on those sets. I did the, um, right, the, the box of the first three English albums was good. My regret on that is what he asked if I could proofread anything that was missing or not there. Oh, okay, yeah. I missed something. The American album of Idea has a photo collage of their faces to make one big head. And on the back cover of the LP sleeve was a, a, a little key to who each one belonged to that wasn't in the box set. I could have just told him, you know, but I think the box it even has the numbers, but it doesn't have the the key. I missed it, you know. <laughs> but otherwise, I, I just thought it was it was so well done. Uh, Excellent. We recently brought the vinyl. I managed to get hold of the vinyl actually from somebody in Finland, and it's mint condition and it plays superb. Well, there's vinyl of that. The, the vinyl of the box set, yeah, really good. Yeah, because. Um, Sandoval was telling me the when he heard the Bee Gees' first album from the actual tapes, he says it sounds so much better 
and on any LP or even CD release that he'd ever heard. He said, the quality really is very high and you can't tell from the way it was released. So he's very happy about that. I was definitely pleased with the vinyl. It's, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad they did a good job on that too. Yeah, and then he talked to me about the Robin Gibb thing also. I somehow managed to get permission. Well, of course, they just need really Duina's permission to, to put that one out. And because uh, none of those are BG's records. So their brother brothers had nothing to say about it. Um, if he, if she was willing to have it released, we yes. did that. So are they mainly mainly acetates that, that were used on that, to Joe? Yeah, um, I did help Andrew find people that had some of those so that he could. And he he told me everyone he asked said they'd love to help him. And, and they did. Yeah. Uh, there's that very long thing called um, Hudson's Fallen Wind, the 12-minute long epic. Through my web pages, I was in touch with a man who lived in New Orleans who said he bought the tape of that from the musical arranger, uh, Kenny Clayton. Kenny Clayton's wife was cleaning out the house and wanted to get rid of some of these old tapes. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? And they were, they were offered for sale someplace online. So uh, this guy in New Orleans bought that and he said, wow, this is great. Because <laughs> there were things on it that had not been on the album that Hudson's Fallen Wind it's an incredible piece of work it really is yeah there's so many there's so much amazing stuff on there and then even there's the orchestral stuff at the end Ghost of Christmas Past Moon Anthem is is phenomenal those yeah I think those were there too the uh, the the moon landing one and the the other one Ben's name is in the is credited also you'll see Ben something he owned those tapes and he was willing to ship them off to Andrew Sandoval to, to use that was really good and there's some other things like that, too, where we just, because uh, Andrew himself had collected a lot of acetates. So some of those are from his own collection. I thought the saddest thing was that there wasn't a good stereo mix of Sing Slowly Sisters. You couldn't locate one at all or anything? Or? It's, Robin's stuff was not archived properly. Yeah, some of it is in the Robert Stigwood organization vault. Some was brought there, obviously, after they got back together. But some is not there. And no one knows what happened to it. So Andrew had the one he used on there was that um, that mono acetate, which is really just a test for someone to listen to the song. It's you can hear the quality is kind of scratchy. Acetates are like that because they're not made to last. They're meant to be listened to maybe a couple of times. And he, he he tried to make it sound better. There is another one. There's another acetate of that that has two tracks. It's got the orchestra on one side and Robin's vocal on the other. And that is not the way they would have released that either. But that one lets you hear Robin singing separately from the orchestra. Maybe that was interesting to somebody in the business to evaluate. I I like that one. Somebody sent me a copy of that. Thank you. 
irons in the fire. You like all that sort of stuff. Where it, to me, I, it's irons a bit, bit slow for me. Uh, I like that one. You like that one as well, do you? I like I, that I, I just think Especially I should... when I finally heard a good copy of it where I could really hear the orchestra. Yeah. The copy I had was terrible. Yeah. And that was very, that's one of the ones that was, he got Andrew founded stereo too. That ending coda where you've got the harpsichord solo sounds beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Right. Yeah, some of those sounded so good when you finally get to hear them after listening to miserable quality bootleg or tape somebody sent you cassettes. Cassette tapes never sound good anyway. But, but you get to hear a song you wouldn't hear otherwise, and then something like that box set comes out. Go, Whoa, okay, this is really great. Yeah, I was really happy to have that one. So do you think they'll do anything for Morris at all, Joe, or do you think? I'd love to. Morris, there's a lot of unreleased Morris that's very good quality we, material. Uh, material. Again, the copies quality. I have are, sound terrible. The acetates and somebody's cassette copy of a cassette copy of someone else's cassette exactly. copy. Um, but yeah, there's some really good stuff. Morris never made much of himself, so he didn't, he didn't push himself to the front. He didn't, he didn't seem to act that way. He seemed to very much prefer doing everything except lead vocals. Yeah. If you see him doing instrumentation, he worked with people on the arrangements, his backing vocals, he's, you know, all over the place. So I think he never, people, most people don't know his name. If yeah. you're not a Bee Gees fan, you barely know the name Morris Gibb. See, Robin at least had a few things, especially in England, he's rather well known. Oh, he is, yeah. Those records that he put out, much less so in the U.S., it was listening to Robin Saved by the Bell. That's the first yeah. record that got me into the Bee Gees, funny enough. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, that I remember too, because that, that same radio station had, they had a show once a week of what were on, what's on the top of the charts in the United Kingdom. And Saved by the Bell was played, and I went, okay, I know that voice, and no one here has ever heard of it. <laughs> it was released in the U.S., but, of course, he, he didn't come and perform here either, so... That was too bad. But uh, yeah, the, um, they were running off. I was trying to say something about the Morris tracks, but there's a lot of, you know, like I say, I've got lots of them, but they're, most of them sound terrible. You know, the quality of the copy. that. But the songs themselves are really, I mean, the song The Loner, I think is brilliant. Yeah. He, and he wrote a lot with Billy Laurie. They always said Morris didn't like, wasn't so good at lyrics or he just didn't care about lyrics. So Billy Laurie is credited as like, he did a lot on the lyrics writing. And uh, but the melody is probably all Morris. Uh, really good. I mean, when we did the book, you know, this thing, Andrew Monhues, who's one of the writers, uh, managed to get hold of Billy Laurie and ask him about that. Billy said he hardly remembers anything because he was drunk all the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, around that time, so was Morris. So yeah, they're not sure who wrote water. So we're trying to, we're just trying to figure that out. But uh, I, I suspect Billy did lyrics because Morris. Apparently, he just didn't care about lyrics. Yeah, so there's, a, there's enough Morris material for quite a good... Well, we think so. ...two or three CD set, but I think the, the sales potential is very low because people just don't know. Like, the real fans would love to have this, you know. 
we did an episode back in January all about the loner and all about Morris's material. And the amount of people who got back to us just saying that they loved hearing this music that they'd never heard before. It was a wonderful reception. It's You played a little bit of it? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We did. We tried to cover everything from 69 right up to about 70, 71. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just some really good stuff there. There's some good stuff later too. He did a bunch of instrumentals later on. Um, he, he's doing music for movies. Breed Apart, was it? Yes, a Breed Apart. That's it. Yeah. That one, they actually did use the music. Oh, I got to talk with the uh, the the arranger who did it. The actual track used in the movie was an orchestral arrangement. I wish I could remember his name. He was a nice guy. Um, he said the contract required an orchestral arrangement. He said, but otherwise, Morris's versions played on synthesizer. He said, they were so good. He said, I wish I could have just put those in there. And then he said, there's one where Morris plays the flute synthesizer. He says, that's so beautiful. He said, I slipped that in. (laughs) He says, I don't even know if Morris knows that, but the flute part on that one, it's the uh, Jim's theme, I think. It's the one that begins with a flute. That that one. Um, I think that might be Morris playing the flute, (laughs) so to speak. Jimmy Haskell. He was very complimentary to Morris. He said it was great. Chris Morris couldn't write music, but he gave Jimmy at least four tracks and maybe more of playing each part individually. So Jimmy could listen to what this instrument should play and that instrument. I can't imagine doing that. Morris would have to have it in his head and build it up. I'm going to play, you know, the, the flute here. I'm going to play the strings here. I'm going to play something else here. You know, what a musical brain, really, you know, to be able to do that. So do you have a favourite period, Joe, that you, you like? Um, yeah, probably the 60s, 70s, up to kind of losing it around the mid-70s. But then again, in the in the eighties and nineties, I thought they did some very good stuff too. Sizes and everything, I thought had some really good songs on it, and like they 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 they're working together again too, which is finally. Mm. I think they were having a little trouble working together until around that time, and that Wilson Morris was not drinking so much, and that really hurt him. Because in the late seventies, when they were selling the most records. Morris apparently was the least productive at that time. It's it's just a shame, you know. I think, I guess it's hard if you really get hooked on something to stop. And uh, they always said he could play bass guitar no matter what, but I'm not sure what, how much else he did. Because it's a shame really, because he did his last, I think his last full vocal track was probably Unto Whom It May Concern. And then he never did anything else to Living Eyes, I think, wasn't it? There was that sort of eight year gap. Right, and he never. It seems like he never did want to sing lead very much, but he, mm. he sounded. I thought he sounded good when he sang lead. So yeah. He could have done more, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, yeah, he just didn't. I I spoke for a couple of hours with the producer on those late '70s ones, LB LB Gluten. 
he told me that Morris did do what he could see. Morris did nothing. He came in to play bass guitar, and that's almost all he did. Sometimes with a little rhythm guitar, but Morris just didn't do a whole lot. And you know, Robin didn't play instruments on those those records. So. Did he not? No, but he said so. They he'd work with Barry and the rest of the band for a few hours, and then Robin would show up late in the day, and Robin would listen to what they had. And he said, the way Robin talked to Barry, you could tell Robin knew those songs already. They definitely worked on the songs together. Nothing was new to him. And he said, Robin's comments were really good, very insightful. Sometimes Robin was saying things, this is in the book, I think. Robin was saying things that they had already thought. Other times Robin would point out something. He said, Robin was really good at this. So, and by contrast, Morris, he had nothing to say. That's, That's too bad. Must have really bothered Morris too that the time they sold the most records is when he wasn't doing much. Wow. What does it make? How do you feel about yourself then? You know, I think Morris is very, very talented. And, you know, eventually he did come back. You win again. It was his introduction, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's Morris. Yeah. Yeah. We were back to the olden days. Morris played a lot of instrumental tracks on the, him and, and some other people. Morris never minded sharing it with other people too. But yeah, the intro to that, that is Morris playing. That was from the demo, but the way they, the way they did multi-track digital demos, if there was something on the demo that was good, they just used that. They didn't play it again because you already had that. That was uh, Arif Martin telling me that. Wow. You met him, did you as well? I got him on the phone. I didn't get to see him in person. I got to see Ahmet Ertegun in person. He found her and head of Atlantic Catco. That was very nice. He had this big office room, you know, and. He had all these Grammy Awards on shelves. I've never seen a Grammy Award in person except there. And uh, pictures of him with famous people. I thought, you know, they should be collecting pictures with, with Ahmed Erdogan. <laughs> Who's more important here in some yeah. ways? He was a nice guy. He was good to talk with. Were you able to meet the, the brothers themselves? Uh, the, only time, the only one I had a chance to talk with much was Morris. For the Columbia University magazine, they did a little feature story on my web pages. And we got to go down and see them when they were recording something in New York. Um, so we talked, not with them on that day, at least uh, Barry Morris were there. And we talked to them for a little while. And then I think Barry was giving us the standard answers to standard questions, nothing new. Um, then he just got up and said, oh, I have to go in the studio and see, you know, okay, so fine. Yeah. Morris did not follow him, Morris did. <laughs> just kept talking. And other people have told me that too. Morris just loved talking to people. And and you wouldn't think he's a big star. He's just talking to you like, this is just his job. I do this, which was very nice. We ended up talking about our daughters and how much we love them. I mean, that's yeah, amazing. <laughs> Morris is a year and a half older than me. So fairly close in, in age. Yeah, we ended up going off into that tangent. And that's when I asked, you know, is it really John Lennon on Have You Heard the Word? <laughs> I kept saying, yeah, yes, it really was. He was yeah. there. No one else says that. <laughs> Steve Kipner says no. He was on there. No, John Lennon was not there. Morris did a very good John Lennon impression. I was good. I was just about to say he does a really good John Lennon impression. He could do a guy John Lennon. I, I can't do it, but yeah. yeah. Have you heard the word? Then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's not John Lennon. Yeah. Really, Morris. You know, but it's a good story. It's a good story. Morris liked a good story. I think Morris's version of their career would have been much more entertaining than the actual thing. 
Because you, you just exaggerate. If it made a good story, why not? You know. Well, I think the Bee Gees could do that. Couldn't they make a good story? I mean, we was talking about that story they put out about Lonely Days and How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Is it the same, written at the same time? And it seems possible. I don't know. You think so? Yeah. And then To Love Somebody, they said was written for Otis Redding, but... That's... Was it End of My Song that was written, that was, that was for Otis yeah, Redding? Yeah, so the, the, the tape reel that has written on it, Otis Redding demo, is The End of My Song. Yeah. And that's a real bluesy kind of song, too. Yeah. That would make sense to Unfortunately, that didn't make any of the reissues, did it, that song? I, I, I don't no, think. Would, they recorded their version during the time they made Cucumber Castle. Oh. That would have been the next reissue. Was there plans to do another reissue, Joe? Definitely. Andrew Sandoval told me he, he worked on the next issue and it was ready to go. Oh, what oh a shame. wow. What a shame. Somebody Could... didn't want it to go out. I never got from him what else. It's Cucumber Castle and what else. Do you just jump to two years on or did you try to get some of those solo songs in there? I don't know. And there's this some good extra songs from that. Yes, yeah, so we never got that. We never got anything else. Yeah, that kind of killed my interest after a while because, you know, I want something new, so to yeah. speak. It's not really new, but it's new to, new to us yeah. sometimes. Well, that's what everybody wants, isn't it? Because we're so used to these bootlegs and things that um, it's just amazing that we get really good quality bootleg for Barry's album. That's good quality, isn't it? I've got that one very good on. I'll omit the name of who gave it to me, but yeah, I, that one, that's good stereo quality on that, yeah. And also the a kick in the head. Kick in the head as well. That's good quality as well. Oh, yeah, 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 that one, different person gave me that one. And that one, yeah, that, that one sounds great. I thought that was good. It's better than Life in a Tin Can. The crazy thing is they're recorded back to back. As soon as they finished one, they moved on to the next. Yeah, incredible. Didn't someone listen and pick out the best songs? No, I don't think so. Probably they were too productive, really, and they could have sat back and yeah, and and pick and choose the better, you know, the best material. No, that's a shame that didn't come out. See, without the reissues, you're not going to get that. Of course, that one I do have in good quality, but I guess many of us do. So, how long did it take to do, to do the book, then, Joe? The the ultimate. I'm one of the with authors because I contributed stuff. Uh, Mark Crowen in Australia contributed a lot of stuff. Mark contacted a lot of people from their Australian days and got talking with them and we were able to get some good quotes about that. I talked to people in the United States, some of which I just mentioned, um, and I did some research in publications in the United States. Um, the main writers were Hector and Melinda, whose names are there. They, they both live in Scotland. Uh, Melinda's actually American. She grew up in Iowa. She met Hector at some kind of Bee Gees event and the rest is history. So they, they've lived in, in Scotland for a long time. And Andrew Monhughes is from Wales, North Wales. So I, I didn't meet them in person until the book was published. They had an event in Manchester uh, when the book was published. And they offered to pay my hotel. as So I just had to pay for the airfare. And I realized, I can do that. So I went in. And that's the first time I met in person Andrew, Hector, and Melinda. And Mark from Australia couldn't make it to that one. But they had another one the next year, and Mark came to that. And that was the first and only time all five of us were in the same room at the same time, same time which was great. We did a lot of it through email. 
little bit through phone calls, but not much at all because that was expensive. Yes, because we're talking, what, 98, something like that, is it? Yeah, 19, 1998 and 99. I don't think we had Zoom yet. Not, <laughs> something like that, I'm not sure. Kind of early internet days there. Yeah, so we couldn't do too much except just ex- we exchanged a lot of email. You know, each one I sent went to the other ones and we all kept, kept it going that way. And uh, so Hector and Melinda actually did the writing based on all the stuff that we had given them. And then they found out the book was going to be 900 pages and the publisher said, that's too long. <laughs> they said the book printer can't do 900 pages. <laughs> so they, they spent a very busy week cutting it down. which I can't believe, <laughs> I don't know what they left out. I do have a copy of the complete book somewhere. I never cared to go through the 700 pages comparing it to figure out what's, what did they leave out? It seemed like nothing is left out, but. That was my lead-in to the to the Australian years because it's oh yeah from sixty three to sixty six they were so prolific, wasn't they? I mean, not only songs themselves, they were giving songs away left, right, and centre. They were singing background, doing everything, and it's a bit of a minefield of actually where to start. There's an awful lot of material there. There were people in the Australian record industry they wanted to promote Australian songwriters and Australian bands, and so Barry and hit the, just the right spot for that and they they were asking him for songs and songs and there was a band that was sent to Barry just get Barry to write a song for you you know same, same record company and Barry said well what what song would you like it to be like you just tell him the like the mood or the kind of music and <laughs> Barry would give you one the next day <laughs> yeah it's like that one it's not the same it's different but it's Barry could just knock them out it's, other people have said he was so prolific he, and so proficient, rather. He just write songs so quickly. It was hard to keep up with them. It was hard to work with them because he'd be going ahead and finishing the song up for him. I don't know how Robin and Morris did it. Or Andy, occasionally, you know, occasionally. We just barely got started, and he's got a song finished. Yeah, really quick, really yeah, quick. See that. There's a two-CD set from Festival Australia. That That's it. All of it. It's almost all of it in one. There's just one, one or two recordings missing, I think, Joe, from that, isn't there, I think? Yeah, it's, it's pretty complete. That record company is out of business. They seem to have thrown out a lot of their archives. It's amazing they got as much as they got on there. And it's all mono, of course, but... That's all they could record at that time. And there's another disc as well, isn't there? I think Joe, with with the, that compiles all songs that they gave away to other people. Oh yeah, yeah. Mark Crowan was behind that. One of the writers. Oh, was there. he? Yeah. Yeah. He he pushed to get that put together. Um, almost all of them belonged to Festival Records, so they could just do it. They gave contracts where you you didn't get royalties. You got we'll pay you this much to record this. Fair enough, because if it doesn't sell at all, you still have the money, right? But. That meant festival owned those recordings flat out. They didn't have to ask anyone, can I use your song? No, just, and they owned it. So they could just, that's why that collection was so possible. Yeah. I think it didn't cost them too much. Luckily, yeah. they did still have good copies of all of those. Thank you.
Could do another volume of that, really, because there must be plenty of stuff still left to um, yeah, fill a second Mark, volume. Mark wanted to do a volume two. Maybe the sales were not encouraging on yeah. volume one, but I thought that's a great set. You can't believe how miserable the copies were that I had of some of those songs. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, I think I hear something in the, some music in the background there. Some of them are terrible. Yeah, they, they came out sounding really good on that set. Mark Crowen did most of the work on researching. It's really good. When he worked for the Australian phone company at that time, so he knew how to look up anybody's phone number and get in touch with them. And that whole Australian section, that's a lot of that is Mark almost. I think on one of the discs, there's about four or five songs composed by Morris. So they must be one of his yeah, early, early recordings. Yeah. yeah, and there's a few by Morris and Nat Kipner. That's who it. Who was their, their producer. Is that Steve Kipner's father then? Was it, was that's it? Steve Kipner's yeah. father. I, I was able to speak with Nat on a phone call. I, oh, I got hold of Steve first, and I asked, how can I reach your father? And he decided maybe I was okay, and he gave me the father's phone number. <laughs> I think Nat was about 90 at that point, but he was totally sharp, and I was asking what he remembered about all this. He said, Morris, and this sounds like Morris too, he said, Morris liked to go in uh, Ozzy Burns' studio and use the piano because they didn't have one at home. They were very poor in Australia. They had very little money. They did not have a piano in the house. But Morris liked to go to the studio if it wasn't, if they weren't recording anything. Morris was allowed to play the piano. Nat said, I hear him playing, making up these tunes, melodies. And Nat offered to help write words to them. And that's why those songs are like that. But there's some hidden gems there, Joe, don't you think, in that? Yeah, there's, there's some good ones. Pre coming to the UK. Know, some of the B sides are Barry Gibbs songs that are really good too. And they're on that collection. Yeah, they did a lot of good stuff in Australia, and uh, very few people know it. Even people in Australia were paying attention to some of them. So. Well, I think they probably thought them as, as when they first started as a, as a you know a child act, didn't they? And, and I suppose they had that image. Yeah, they, they were cute, cute kids who could sing mm. harmony. And, you know, it's hard to take them real seriously as musical artists. But they'd come on TV and that would be nice. That'd be fun. There's a group like that in the United States called the Osmonds that ended up the same way. That all these little boys and they'll sing together and they sound really good. And they did. And then, you know, are they serious? Yeah. Pretty similar, I think. Yeah, so they had to kind of fight their way out of that. It's probably good to just change completely to England where nobody knew that. I'm surprised in the UK that Spicks and Specs wasn't a hit because it's yeah. got hit and written all over it, isn't it? Oh, and it I does, thought, yeah, yeah. And I'm surprised that they didn't promote that one. Well, there didn't seem to be any promotion for it. It was, it was all to do with New York mining disaster. Yeah, yeah. That was Polydor Records UK, which was not a big company in England yet. It was a German company. Yeah, they got the rights to that from Festival Australia because they thought this might be good. You know, it's mm. a good record, and they're right. It does sound like a good record. I think maybe once they signed with Stigwood, maybe Stigwood wanted to push new stuff that they were doing under his direction or whatever. And I think they did as well, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, many artists... Look at something they did a few years ago and think it's terrible. I could do so much better now. Mm-hmm. My daughter's a visual, an artist, you know, a visual artist, and she does the same thing. You show her some work she drew three years ago. I'm like, oh, it's awful. I don't want <laughs> <laughs> If I did that now, yeah. yeah. Sounds like a, some musical artists feel that way too. I don't want to listen to my old stuff. Yeah. We found an interview with, was it, who was interviewing Barry, where he did actually mention a couple of tracks from, from his solo album, wasn't there? It was the interview with Tim Roxburgh, who did a, a fantastic interview oh, recently yeah. for Greenfields. Yeah. And he asks Barry all about The Kid's No Good. 
And it's amazing how instantly Barry can remember the melody of the victim. So all of those songs are stored up there. It just takes someone to, yeah, to bring it out of him. It's still in there. Because it's one of the best tracks on the album, that one, I think. Yeah, there's some there's, there's good stuff on that album. That's another one. Where, what happened to that? You know, there was no way to get that out. Come on. The sound quality of it's really good as well. It, it could be released. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. It was, that was well done. I wish I knew who else was on it. Barry, vocal and guitar. I, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Bill Shepard, singers and orchestra, because Barry worked with him a lot. Bill Shepard had singers as well as orchestral. Well, you can hear them on things like Seven Seas Symphony, that big chorus comes mm. And it wasn't a real group. It was whoever he hired each time, <laughs> probably repeating people he, he worked with well. What did you think to Greenfields? Um, yeah, he's re-recording famous songs with a different person each mm. one. It's an idea. Might be a way to sell records. I don't think he really needs to sell records at this point in his life. I think he's got enough money in the bank to last another hundred years. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I thought that's eh, okay. You know, I have that somewhere. I don't think it's in this room, but no. Well, I think it was because it had words of a fool on it, didn't it? Which was unreleased. So that's probably that's the reason I brought it as well. So yeah. In fact, when CDs first came out. For a year or two, I was buying the CDs when I didn't even have a CD player because I wasn't sure they would still be there. I just want to make sure I got them. I think I remember that the first CD I think produced in the UK was, was it Living Eyes? Yeah, it was Living Eyes. It was the first thing they pressed and what, what a strange choice. But yeah, yeah, that was 81. 81. Around, American would, must have been right around there too. Might have even been in sooner. Too. They had to get factories that were able to produce them. Apparently they, it was a little difficult. They have to be so precise. You know? Yeah, they were building factories in the States in places where the ground was a little bit soft so that there wouldn't be any vibration upsetting the machinery as it burned. Yeah, you know, someplace in Illinois outside of Chicago where it's not a swamp, but a little smooth movement. <laughs> not like a truck goes past outside or a train and everything, <laughs> everything moves. You know, those were the days. Wow, very early. But I, Living Eyes, I think, is the first one I actually bought because that was, that was out. The, the CD itself was made in Germany and shipped to the U.S. and packaged with English language on for, for U.S. In the late 80s, 90s, you couldn't get um, Living Eyes for love of money. It was it was so expensive, especially in the U.K. I think you had to wait get the expensive Japanese version. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, in, so when I was looking to get the CD, I think probably 90s, late 90s, you, just, you couldn't find it anyway. Huh. All that explains the sales. <laughs> <laughs> You see people on the internet saying they, they struggle to find good copies of Two Years On, Trafalgar. Because um, I think there was a good quality Trafalgar that came out about 96, wasn't there or something, a special master or something of yeah, it? Yeah, there but... was a special, was it gold or something? That's it. Yeah. I confess I couldn't hear the difference. But... Oh, you couldn't? Oh, well, save me buying that one then. I got it. I got it because maybe it sounds better. I don't know. But you couldn't, that much difference. I'm not saying no one hears the difference. I just uh... These ears from listening to too much loud stuff by that. <laughs> I could see on, on your Gib Songs website there's quite a few songs where you've put no record. Are those songs that haven't been released, but have you heard them yourself? Have you had a chance to hear these even if they haven't been released? Yeah. I think when I said no record, it meant I didn't know of any 
certainly not released, no record. Meaning by that, you couldn't buy a copy. There was no, no single or album or anything that had that song on it. I think I was, I think I was marking them partly for myself. Like, okay, that one. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean I don't have one or that no fans have them, but because they probably recorded it. They seem to have made a reasonably good recording of everything. I've heard a few really rough recordings, but mostly sound really good. Even the ones they call demos or you could release them, you know, especially the 80s, 90s, because Morris's demos are practically finished songs. Yeah, for the ESP demo is pretty good as well. That was on a yeah. reissue quite a while ago. So That's the one that where I was told some of the demo sound is on the finished one. And I think they're using 24 track by then, maybe 48 track. So they could replace anything, anything that didn't sound right, you could replace that part. But if you had something you liked, keep that part. And so Morris is, it's hard to say which what's Morris and what's not. You know, mm. somebody else could play that part a little better. That's the thing is Morris didn't mind. If he thought someone else could play it better, he'd have them do it. He spoke with um, an engineer on the Robbins Secret Agent LP. He's the engineer for that. And he said, it was very interesting, Mark. Morris going out into the studio with the, I think they only had two musicians to work with. They did, because even the percussion was done on the synthesizer. Morris was not telling them what to do. He was playing it and then saying, what do you think? A lot of session musicians are not used to being asked, what do you think? Or can you think of another way to play that? And, and they would go back and forth until, but Morris was the boss. He had to like it. Once Morris was satisfied, they had all come up with a good arrangement for that thing record he said that was very interesting i think it's very standard in the business for somebody to come in okay here's here's the written music play this next and uh quite an experience and the song wasn't totally finished and yet he and he and robin clearly knew how the song went and robin would be vocalizing and changing the words every time he went through it until robin liked them morris would comment sometimes that would have been amazing to sit and listen to that wouldn't it they fly on the wall on it, yeah. You know, they, they had a song, but they hadn't finished it, and they wanted to keep thinking through how should we play it, how should we sing it. You can hear Morris singing a little bit on those. At the beginning of Robot, especially, that ain't never no way. That's, yeah. that's Morris. Ain't never no. Yeah, sometimes when Robin goes a bit rocky, I say to Christiana, I say, sometimes, is that Robin singing or is it Morris singing? Mm-hmm. Occasionally, Morris would go into a kind of a nasal area that sounded almost like Robin. It's, there, there have been uh, there have been many discussions about some of the songs singing that. Which one of them is that? You know. Yeah. The, the biggest dispute I know of is the beginning of Daytime Girl. They All right. Yeah. Was my Daytime Girl? Is that Morris or Barry? I I always thought that was Barry. And I always thought it was Morris. It's either Barry singing a little lower than usual, which he could do, or I think it's Morris. What got me especially was the line, everybody stares as she falls to the ground, the way it kind of dribbles off. Because I never heard Barry do that anywhere else. That doesn't mean he keep, didn't do it there, of course. Yeah. So it's, the matter is not settled. <laughs> All the people stare as she falls to the ground. We, we know that there's a similar dispute on After Dark as to what's Barry and what's Andy. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Albie Gluten told me that Andy was pretty stoned and uh, Barry could do a very good Andy voice. <laughs> so as needed. 
get Andy to sing as much as you could, and then Barry would sing, and yeah, listen to that, yeah, try and tell them apart. It could even be the two voices doing yeah. in unison, like Barry strengthening out the Andy part. Andy's such an amazing talent, and it's and it, it, even those those 1986-87 songs, "Man on Fire," I think is one of one of the greatest Andy vocals that there is. Yeah, that one's good. I like "Time Is Time," which I think that sounds like more like an Andy song to me than a Barry song. And um, "Arrow Through the Heart's really good as Arrow well. "Arrow Through the Heart" is incredible, mm. so prophetic and sad. I really like that one. I know the line, "I'm young, I'm too young to die." Oh. Because there's a couple more songs they did at that session that are still unreleased, aren't there, as well? So Yeah, and those are, that's Morris playing all the instruments, by the way. Oh, is it? Yeah. Except there's a lead, little lead guitar break in one of them that was, I think they said it was the engineer, the sound yeah. engineer came out with a yeah. guitar. He played that little bit. I don't know. Do you think he would have joined them? I don't know. I don't know if that would have been good for him, really. I think We don't get to hear the real Andy that much. It's always... Barry's version of Andy. It's kind of it's really sad because he, he was talented. stuff he did in Australia, which was not released. There's some very good, there's a good album's worth of Andy Gibb. Gives you, gives you a taste. Well, it's, it's a testament to the Bee Gees, how many musical projects that they did and they were involved with that are just lost and forgotten about because there's so much of it. Jimmy Ruffin, Sunrise, or Carola, Runaway, all these albums that get lost and buried. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's some good stuff in there. I love that uh, Searching. I'd love to hear Robin singing that, but there is there is nothing. Blue said there are there aren't demos. They except um, the the single. There's a version with Robin singing that. Blue said they just performed the songs in front of Jimmy Ruffin, and Jimmy was quick enough to get them a couple times through. He knew what to do, and they would just record it. So there's no demo. Because I think there was a couple of outtakes from tragedy recordings, wasn't there? Around Spirits Haven't Flown, there was a couple of recordings there I think they used. Yeah, yeah, one of the songs was left over from that. See, that's them working together, so they had more songs than they, they, yeah. they only wanted 10 for the album because they're kind of long, so yeah, and then you have leftovers. And then they've had leftovers from many of their albums. Sometimes they show up again later. Well, we looked um, and it was on your page for 1970 where you say that there's about 110 recordings that were done in 1970 alone? Oh, yeah, that one. Between all the solo things. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, it's I incredible. Turning out songs of like, it, it's, wow. And then Barry's got a poetry book. and the, Bar- Barry's poetry book, I've seen a copy, I don't have it. A lot of it's the lyrics of the songs from that solo album, a few other things. We found it on um, the GSI website, Marion's website. It's all oh, yeah. there, all the poetry. Uh, okay, yeah, all right, so you've seen it too, yeah. Um. My memory of seeing it a long time ago was that I recognized those as being songs from his, his 1970 album. There might be a few that are not. If you could name a title, maybe I could remember. Because I like Moonlight, but that, unfortunately, that song is the only one that you don't get in really good quality. It's, uh... Oh, yeah, because that was the only, the only release of that was it was played on radio somewhere. Yeah, it's a really good song. It's a shame, really, that out of all of them... Um... It, it could have been on that album, but then he already had, I think, 12, right? Yeah, so, you know. 
And then when they got together, I think it was touchy to include anything they had done before they got together. Yeah, we wondered that because we recently did an episode on Two Years On. And we, we wondered why songs that like Give Me a Glass of Wine or The Loner or Avalanche, Sing Solely Sisters, why they weren't included on the album. Because Two Years On isn't the greatest Bee Gees album. Yeah, it's kind of a strange mix. I think they were really trying to feel their way to working together again, you know. A lot of hard feelings going on there. I think Barry had the most hard feelings much. Because the twins started working together first, didn't they, for two years on? And yes, they, as they were I... beginning to do songs. I don't know if that would have been released as a Robin and Morris album. or They, they got to not like working alone. They liked to work mm. with each other. I think Robin got that out of the system. And you can see from that box set how much he got out of the system. But it, they probably wondered because they, they had always worked with Barry. And I think you might wonder, well, how much can I do myself? How much of this is, is me and how much... Is that my older brother there, yeah. And I think maybe they just needed to feel what they could do by themselves. So it's me making something up, but I think something like that. So yeah, Robin and Morris were, were working. Two year, the song Two Years On, which was called I Can Laugh originally, is one of the ones that they were working on. It's exactly the same song, except the chorus is I Can Laugh... Instead ah. of two years on. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Everything else is the same. <laughs> it even sounds like the same uh, instrumental track. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff in that period. That just Cucumber Castle plus some of that stuff and two years on. Wow. To me, that would have been a, an amazing set. With Like maybe one third of it would have been brand new. But I guess not. I guess not. The ones from Acetates always sound kind of pretty bad. Very scratchy and, and noisy, but. Still, you can hear what the song is. You can judge. Yeah, you can judge what quality it is. You know what? Yeah, how good a song is this, right? And that's what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Andrew Sandoval was so lucky, obviously, if he's able to hear all these stuff. Because in his book, he sort of details this song's good quality. This is half finished. No, he, he got to hear all the master tapes. And must have been quite an experience. But it's frustrating because you read his book and he'll say, he'll say something like, "This song is as good as or better than what than what was put on, say, two years on or Trafalgar." Yeah. And you're thinking, wow, I wonder what this this is like, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of songs here, aren't we? So. Yeah. Yeah, I found a um, an article, a uh, newspaper article, I think from about 1971. And Morris says in that, he, he could be making this up or emphasising, but he says that he's totted up by 1971 that the Bee Gees have done a, over a thousand songs together. <laughs> <laughs> That's Morris. That's Morris. I believe Morris said that. <laughs> No, I, thought, no I thought it might be. <laughs> <laughs> you just enjoyed doing that. Like, you want a good story? I'll, let me give you a good story. There's thousands of songs there. A hundred? I never tried to count them. Certainly a hundred. I'm just a low-down critter who never did any good. I'm just a low-down critter who never did any good. So have you seen him live in concert? Yes, it's been a long time. Yeah, I saw them in New York in 1970. And uh, where's it? 71. It was... In connection with two years on, probably seventy one because I think that's one came out. Is that with Tintin? Did Tintin were they on with them as Tintin well? Tintin was were with them. Yes, yeah. Tintin were the opening act. Toast and Marmalade and other things that were on that first Tintin album. Yeah, they came out first. They they were good. They they would talk a little bit about what the song was about and then do it and then, which got us into it because we never heard any of their songs before. So they they, they pulled it off very nicely. The two the two Steves, yeah, they were good good opening act and the Bee Gees came out and did things. The weirdest thing there is that they did um, Butterfly, oh, which wow. Barry put on that album, didn't he? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And I had never heard that one before because it was not released anywhere. 
yet it's in one of the Australian songs. Somebody recorded it in Australia, another artist, you know, so maybe they figure that one's been used already. So they were playing that. And I thought, this is a great song. What is this? Is this on the new album that I, I didn't notice? Uh, it's not on two years on, you know. I don't know why they chose to do that one. It's very unusual for them to do one that the audience wouldn't know already. They always like to please the audience by playing all the usual ones that we would know. Because I think they even brought in on one of the tours around that time, Jingle Jangle as well, didn't they? Yeah, they, oh, they played that too, with uh, Barry and Robin singing it together and somebody playing the jangly instrument. I forget if Morris did that or the guitar player did. Alan Kendall might have done that. But yeah, they, they did that one a lot too. They seemed to like doing that. Yeah. And they did it in the, mor- in the morning, they liked yeah, it's what, that's one of my favourites. That uh, yeah. one, I think I said best Australian song. Yeah, that that's a that's a real that seems to me like the first one Barry really got something. Yeah, sounds mature. It's it's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's a little better. It's uh, reminds me a little bit of Catch the Wind, but it's d- different enough that I wouldn't worry about. But in '71 as well, you say they they did them songs. They also didn't release it, but they did Don't Forget Me Ida as well, didn't they? Seventy Seventy One as well. Whether they were looking back on a couple of things, I don't know. Yeah, that, that was around the time they did music for that um, that movie, because Melody, because they used In the Morning. He pulled that In the Morning off the shelf. And, and it seems like right around that time they did Don't Forget Me, Ida, as if maybe that was a candidate where they were going to suggest, I don't know how that would fit in. I saw that movie. I don't remember much of anything. About <laughs> Kids running around, I remember. Well, it's the same two people that was in Oliver, I think. It was Mark Lester and Jack Wilde, I think. You just brought them back into my, my brain. Yeah. I don't know what they did. They were school kids running around. But I think you did really well in Japan, didn't it? I think they got a... Was it yeah, a... That, that movie apparently was a really big deal in Japan. It played in the States, but not. I don't remember it being a like a big deal for anybody. When you saw them in tour in 71, did they have the orchestra as well? Oh, definitely. Bill Shepard was there in person with oh, okay. an orchestra. They didn't tour with the orchestra. They hired players for each place that they went. See, Bill wrote out all the charts. In New York, you can definitely find musicians of that caliber without any problem at all. Wherever they went, he would give them the arrangements and they'd probably run through it a couple of times, I guess. And although some of those musicians, first time through, <laughs> this music is not that hard to play mm. for them. He used to playing classical music. And B- Bill Shepard was there and they'd, at some point they'd point him out and say, there he is, and he'd take a bow, you know. Well, we started the podcast, we started from 1967 with Bee Gees first. And I have to say, I think one of the greatest unsung heroes of the Bee Gees career is Bill Shepard. He's just superb arrangements. And he, right. people rarely talk about him, but he's so fantastic. He's, he's George Martin for the Bee Gees. Yeah, he was very important because Robert Stigwood did not know how to make records. Really, he knew how to promote records. But for making records, Bill Shepard knew that. Bill had been around. Um, Bill had put out some instrumental, easy listening records in England, and then he went to Australia. Because he started work with them, but what about 65, 66? Yeah, he was in Australia for about a year, and he worked with them. He, he saw that they were really good in a way that the people at Festival Records weren't really believing in them. It might be because he was coming in fresh. He didn't see them when they were 10 years old. He saw them as what they were doing there. And yeah, he produced a few records, a few singles on most of that one album that they did. And then he went back to England. But yeah, l- listening to albums like Odessa, and we've recently been listening to To Whom It May Concern, his, the, the last album that they did with him, and he is just on fine form. He's incredible. Yeah, really, really good. 
I, I do like the touch that for that song that Morris was working with uh, Paul Buckmaster on the cello, the cello parts. Yeah, because they have that dark choir as well going on top of it. That's the Bill Shepard singers. Yeah. Well, we wondered also about Moon Anthem and Ghost of Christmas Past. That's credited as Robin Gibb and the orchestra. So was that Robin Gibb conducting the orchestra? Kenny Clayton. Okay. Who's credited on the uh, Robin's Green? Yeah, Kenny Clayton did a lot of that. He, I can't figure out how much of that would have been Robin, really. Because in Ghost of Christmas Past, they're reading out passages. I'm not sure whether it's from the Dickens novel or if it's Robin's given them some of his words. I think I only listened to that once. <laughs> <laughs> read a lot of stuff so he may have been pulling out things from dickens that's quite believable yeah he was doing really good stuff robin's voice just incredible yeah it is it is yeah i saw them in 91 when they were touring with high civilization and i enjoyed the tour but it's probably one of my least favorite albums of theirs but uh same here yeah I mean, I, I, one is one of my favourites, funny enough, and then you, and same with sizes and everything. But that one in between, it, it never, it was too long. The songs were too long. It just didn't register with me. I don't know why, but yeah, yeah, I felt like that one didn't work somehow, and I, I can't quite explain it either. The production's quite clinical, and oh yeah, Fanny Gia was the producer on there. He worked with Prince a lot. Good, strong percussive sound and stuff. There's parts of that that I really liked, but. Yeah, but it just, yeah, that album didn't work. Secret Love I like. and Secret Love is definitely good. Um, when He's Gone, I like, too. you got a lot of Robin singing on that one, too. Um, it's one of the few on that whole thing. But you get some Robin Lee vocal for part of the song. But then Barry was sort of doing songs where it, 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 the, chorus, the verse would be about two minutes, wouldn't he, before then sort of weaving in and out, before the chorus had come in. Barry was writing about something there. I'm not too sure what that was, so... I did also see your Usenet guide for the Beatles. Uh, yeah. Since then, we've had the Deluxe Abbey Road, the Get Back Project, the Deluxe Let It Be. What do you make of those Beatles archive sets now in relation to that guide that you'd made for the Beatles? I haven't tried to compare that. Um, that's something else I haven't listened to much in quite a few years, but I've got those things. I could listen to them. You can't <laughs> listen to everything. There's not enough time. There isn't. There's never enough time. Last couple of weeks I've been listening to Chuck Berry songs. So, you know, you, I just jump all over the place. Isn't there a Chuck Berry song that John Lennon redoes has come to? Oh, yeah. It, Actually, it, John took like one phrase. Here come all flat top moving up slowly. That's it. That's the entire thing that John, just the words, yeah. not the melody and not the rest of the song. I, I can't believe there was a lawsuit on that. Yeah. It's just... Uh, it's, it's the same with the, the lawsuit against How Deep Is Your Love. Oh, that one, yeah. Which is it's just ridiculous. The Bee Gees have never copied someone else's work before, not directly. So why would they start in 1976? And one of the points on that copyright suit was how could they have even heard the song? Exactly, yeah. It mm. was never published or never recorded in public. They couldn't have heard it. 
one of the what the final the judge's final ruling was a copyright violation means you copied something if you never heard it you could not have copied it and they did not they failed to prove any way that the Gibb brothers could have heard that guy's song I don't care if parts of it sound similar maybe both of you copied somebody else's song you know it, it must be hard because sometimes I think a songwriter just when they say oh it just comes to me and Sometimes it just comes to you because a song you heard sometime in the past, and then you've got to do something there. It's wonderful to catch it before it goes out on a record because then mm. arrangements could be made. There's a song of Stephen Stills of that band. He wrote the song, and luckily somebody in the office pointed out that part of that song is similar to somebody else's song. And they contacted the publisher of the other song. That guy was happy to co-write with Stephen Stills, in that, even in that way. It goes out with the two, the two names on it. Mm. That's not a problem. Of course, if they said, no, you can't use it, well, then you couldn't have put the song out. It's awful when it goes out. It's on a record. People have bought it and now suddenly, you know, come together, has an old flat top grooving up slowly. But, mm. you know, you had to have heard it. Beatles obviously knew Chuck Berry songs very well. They recorded quite a few of them and made Chuck some good money, I think. I bet they did. All over Beethoven and rock and roll music. And how many Beatles albums were those on? And the songwriter, he's the songwriter, gets the gets the income from that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know why they chose to sue on that. Was, was that Alan B. Klein? It probably was Alan B. Klein. He liked to I think he liked was. to sue yeah. everybody for everything. Could you pinpoint a favorite BG song? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty hard. Yeah, that's that's really hard. I like a lot of them for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, now nah, I wouldn't want to say that. Dearest is the worst song, but is it dearest or drearest? <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, not not everyone agrees on that either. Right? Well, they're better stuff to put. They're better stuff to swap over, didn't they? That album would have been interesting as it originally was with Country Woman and We Lost the Road. If the reissues had gone through, we might know that. It may be with in the tape archives, you know, that stuff is there sometimes. Because they had, um, Andrew Sandoval told me they, they have the, the masters for each song. You know, there's a tape that has the, the version of that song and the multi-track for that song. And then there's one that's the album compilation that is that they're going to use to press the records with. It mm-hmm. has the song... If there's two or three seconds before the next one, that's there. And, you know, you have that. So is there possibly an album compiled with 14 songs? Side one, it'd be like a real for side one and for side two. Yeah. That's what they would send off to get to get uh, made into a test pressing first to make sure it's good. Mm. So that one, I don't know. It's a shame, really, because it, they're not released because they seem to be really popular at the moment, these archive releases, you know. I mean, I've, I've been collecting the Paul McCartney ones, but that's taken about 10 years from Band on the Run to at the moment, isn't it? 10, 12 years. And we're still only, we're still short album short. So at least he's going into it. You're not getting much unreleased stuff, but you at least he's going into it and, and you, you get the feel of what he was doing at that period. But with, with... A lot of major artists have done this. They've given you, you know, all this stuff. Neil Young has been going through everything he ever recorded. <laughs> Uh, we won't, we're only up to volume two out of what, at this rate, it's going to be 10. It's not going to live long enough. Um, 
I swear, it's like every single thing. And he says, I'm not saying they're all good. I'm just saying this is everything I did. Mm. <laughs> and he's right. They're, they're not all good. Mm. <laughs> but if you have them, it, it's, you've got them there and you do well. I mean, some of these stuff you listen to and you think, oh, I listened to it once. I'm not going to listen to it again. But at least you've got it there, haven't you, too? And you congratulate them on making the right choice. That one shouldn't have come out. Exactly. Yeah. But then you'll get to one that's so good. You go, what? Well, I thought that about Pity on the, that's one of my favourite songs as well. One of the outtakes from Odessa, Pity. Oh, Pity. Yeah. That's yeah not... I, I like that. I, I, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. There's always some like that. I like it. All right, well, thank you very much for your time, Joe. You didn't run out your 40 minutes here. It just kept going. I looked every now and again. I thought, well, we're, we're striking it. Look here. It's, we're uh, going to an hour and a half now. Don't, don't tell them. Don't let them charge you extra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen the bill yet. Yeah, they just didn't notice. They didn't notice. <laughs> they didn't notice. Well, thank you so much, Joe. You're welcome. Yes, yeah, brilliant. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank the rest you. of your night, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it is. Just gone up past nine. Oh, man. Yeah, okay. It's only it's only four thirty here. I've got time. Four thirty-two. <laughs> Sun is out. There's some birds singing out there. I don't know if you can hear them. They, there's some doves going. Coo, coo, <laughs> They're obviously enjoying the interview. Yeah, I guess they are. The wind is <laughs> right behind my computer. Is the window and it's open because it's They're listening. That was fun. So, yeah, and you have others. You say hmm. you've done others episodes already. Yeah, we've done so far Bee Gees first, and then we've gone through, at the moment, we're around early 1970s, Trafalgar, to make concern. Yeah, yeah, okay, so I've missed I've missed quite a few. Yeah, it'd be fun for me to listen to those again after a few years. Then you can tell us where we've gone wrong in all of them, you see? No, no I wouldn't. I'll tell you what other people thought. I mean, it's, it's hard to get any fans to agree on everything. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all down to personal opinion, isn't it? I mean, what's somebody likes on the and that's good. It's a good thing, you know? Yeah. I think it's good to have a lot of different opinions. I think that's good. It's, uh, I always find it very interesting when a fan is saying how much they like a song that I think is horrible. <laughs> that's, I guess that's why it came out on the record. Somebody thought it was good. All right, till some other time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Take Cheers, care. Joe. Bye-bye. Well, I have to say, Chris, that was great to catch up with Joe, wasn't it? I mean, particularly for me, because I've been using his web pages since 2000. I think the first time I uh, went onto it was about 2005, something like that. And that after reading the biography, re- then reading all these notes, it was just fantastic. And it enabled me to go through and, and collect all the bootlegs and unreleased stuff that were available and able to cross them off and hence go forward. So, no, excellent. Yeah, we spent about an hour and a half with Joseph, but we only really scratched the surface with the amount of knowledge that he has oh, absolutely. regarding the Bee Gees and also other artists as well. Yeah. So for our next podcast, we'll be going back to what we have been doing. And we'll speak to you next time. Everybody said, no good.
Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Words, 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 words.